0: In this episode, I will talk about the role that trust plays in negotiations and in contracts. This is not about how you get what you want. Negotiations is not about how you get what you want. Or how about tricking the other side to give you as much as you want uh, and take as little as you you want them to. Uh, At least that's not the focus of this podcast episode. I will talk about the two types of negotiations and, of course how trust plays a role, especially in one of them, right after this. I like to start with actually getting us all on the same page in what is, what are negotiations at all? So we enter negotiations when there are two sides, sometimes more, but let's say two sides, with you being one of them. And these two sides have different ideas of what the outcome should be when there is a dependency between the two sides. So take, for example, if you're buying something You're buying, the other person is selling, there is a dependency. If if there was no dependency, you're not going to get what you want to buy and they're not going to get your money. So there is some kind of a dependency. There needs to be something, there needs to be an outcome that depends on both of you doing something. Now, the outcome can only arrive if both of you will agree to the same terms, Now, naturally, uh, if you don't exactly, I mean, if you both want to get exactly the same thing for doing exactly the same effort, there's absolutely no reason to negotiate. I mean, this is an agreement upfront and we don't need to argue that the thing is we want something slightly different or maybe we want to put in something slightly different. If we're buying something, then you, the buyer, you want to get as much as possible and give as little as possible. The seller on the other side, on the other hand, on the other side, wants to give as little as possible and get as little as possible. And and I'll talk about uh, the the times when you actually can't reach uh, an outcome, but naturally each one of you wants to get the outcome, the, the outcome that you would agree to, to be closer to what they wanted but since they wanted different things, they must compromise. There has to be a compromise. And negotiations is actually the process by which you reach that compromise. So you start arguing and, and you're trying to convince the other side uh, of uh, why they should give what they should, what you think they should and why they should take what you think they should. And they're going to try and argue the opposite. And, you know... There are the walkaway conditions for each one of them, but uh, a, a, the result of successful negotiations is when a compromise is reached, that you both reach a point where there is a compromise and there is an outcome that you can both live with. A failed negotiation ends when there is no compromise, when you can't reach something that you can both agree to. A contract, a contract is really what comes out of negotiations. They typically starts in negotiations. We start arguing and then we reach a general agreement and then we typically put it in writing. And I say typically because a contract actually doesn't have to be in writing. Now, a a comment that I immediately need to uh, put here is that nothing in this episode or in this podcast in general constitutes legal advice. This is not legal advice. This is my opinion. And uh, those are my opinion alone. So uh, I said that a contract doesn't necessarily have to be in writing. We typically think of contract as something in writing that, that is also signed. Um, but a contract can simply be verbal. You know, you and I agree on something and uh, we shake hands. We don't even have to shake hands. But if we agree to something, then it's a contract. And one of us can be found to be in breach of that contract. Contract doesn't even have to be verbal. It can simply be through action. If over a long enough period of time, there is a certain relationship, a certain expectation on both sides for what the other side will do, and all of a sudden one of them stops doing it, There is a way to say that that was a breach of contract. Do we need to sign a contract? Well, not necessarily. Really, all of this comes up to the evidentiary value of was there really an agreement? So was there an agreement simply because we behaved in a certain way? Was there an agreement because we uh, uh, said something? And of course, when there is a disagreement, typically there's going to be a disagreement about what you said, what I said, what you heard, what I heard. And and who's going to say who's right and who's wrong when it's your word versus mine? With the written uh, contract, uh, one of the problems, if, if you don't sign it, for example, is what is the proof that both sides actually agreed to it? So, you know, I, I'm, this is not going to be a course, a mini course on contract law. But I just wanted to say that negotiations is the step to reach an agreement on an outcome contract is really kind of I'll call it setting it in stone, but but it's really uh, putting it in. Well, again, doesn't ha- <laughs> doesn't have to be in writing, but but it's uh, I'll call it codifying it. Okay, so we define what negotiations are. I define what contract is. Let's move on to the type of negotiations. <music> So I look at two types of negotiations, a win-win negotiations and a zero-sum game uh, or win-lose negotiations. And so I'll start by defining them. Win-win is when it is important for every side in the negotiations that the other side wins as well. Maybe not as much as they wanted, maybe not as much as you wanted, but both sides have to win enough zero sum game is is really a game that uh, whatever you know if we started with uh with certain positions for one of us to gain position the other one would lose the same amount of position so it ends up being a zero sum so the changes add up to zero for me to win you have to lose for you to win i have to lose and uh you can you can already see that those would require different states of mind, different approaches to how we negotiate. Um, And it it really comes down to me into several things. One of them is, is this a long-term relationship or is this a one-time transaction? When it is a one-time transaction, then you really are more focused on you winning, than on me lose, uh, than, than than on me winning. So you're willing for me to lose for you to win. It's a one-time transaction. You go and you buy a car. That's a one-time transaction. You're not starting a relationship with the dealership. Typically, you don't start a relationship with the dealership. So it's one time. You gain whatever you can in this relationship, in in this negotiations, and you get out of it. You're not trying to establish a relationship, a long-term relationship. On the other hand, um, you know, I, I can look at marriage as a contract, as, as a relationship, as a long-term relationship where you have to give some things up and, and she has to give something or he has to give something up. Um, and, um. It needs to be a long-term relationship. Now, the the reason why it's important to make this distinction is because the loser in a zero-sum game, in a win-lose negotiation, the loser will not get into negotiations with you without any hurt feelings or without feeling the need to compensate for what happened before. We're going to assume that the loser in the negotiations understands that they're the loser, right? So they, they understand that they just lost the, the negotiations um, because you had more power or, or more leverage or, or what have you. But they're going to carry that feeling if you ever get into negotiations with them. So it is important to make that distinction. Are we building a long-term relationship? Because if we're building a long-term relationship, it is important that the other side does not feel that they lost in this negotiations. Again, you're buying something one time. Do you care if they lost? Unless of course, um, you are going to buy more from them because then you do, you, do, you don't want them to feel that they lost. And there is so you know for for a one-time transaction for for a if you're willing to do a zero-sum game the focus of how you negotiate is different the focus is going to be on how do you manipulate to get your position it is self-centered it is how you maximize what you get hardly ever it's more important to you that the other side loses more than it's important for you to win but you know what even that happens in the most contentious negotiations in when especially when emotions and egos are involved very strongly sometimes i find people focusing more on the other side losing than them winning So that's what happens in one-time transaction when there is not going to be a relationship. Uh, If you ever read Chris Voss's Never Split the Middle book, uh, it's a great book. Chris Voss was an FBI hostage negotiator. And, you know, when I tell you that he was a hostage negotiator, you already understand what kind of negotiations we're talking about. The hostage negotiator is not trying to build a long-term relationship with the hostage taker. He or she are not trying to uh, make sure that the other side wins as well. They need to get the other side to win as little as possible and their side to win as much as possible. You're trying to get the the hostage out. The other side is trying to get money or a helicopter or a bus or whatever, and, and you're trying to minimize what they're going to get. Which is why the title of the book and his whole attitude is never split the middle, because, you know, if you have one hostage, uh, splitting the middle means that you only get half the hostage back, and you don't want to get half the hostage back. So, this is a one time transaction. The focus typically is on manipulation and self centered. And I say typically because there is an exception to that. And the exception is. If you care about the other side losing, if you have enough empathy to the other side to say, well, I have power, I have leverage, I can win more, but I'm going to hold back because I don't want them to lose as much. Not because you're thinking about the long-term relationship, not because you're thinking about the next time you're going to negotiate with them, but simply because this is who you are. And there's value in that. And, and I'll talk about how you enter that kind of negotiations, uh, but but really, for the most part, it's going to be in the context of long-term relationship. And that's the focus of this episode. So the focus of this episode is really on win-win rather than zero-sum game. Whether win-win comes from a position of, I'm going to have to negotiate with that person again. This is going to be a long-term relationship. I don't want them uh, to feel that they lost the first time and then they may come back, uh, try and get as much leverage as they can over me for the next time that they're going to negotiate with me. Uh, or it can simply be because uh, I just don't want the other person to, the other side to lose too much. What, Whichever it is, It's a win-win negotiation that the focus of this episode is going to be on. Obviously, the first question that needs to be asked is if win-win is a value to you. Is it a value? Is it something that you care about? One of the components of my relative trust model is personality compatibility. It's not enough for win-win for the outcome of this negotiation to be win-win. And again, whether it's a long-term relationship and the reason for win-win is because you know you're going to have to negotiate with them again and you don't want them to feel that they lost the first time and try to compensate the second time, or it's a one-time transaction, but you still don't want them to lose. Win-win may be a value to you. Now, something that's really important, I'm... I'm not saying that it should. I'm not suggesting that it should. You're the only person that can decide if win-win is a value for you. And I'm not going to tell you that if you want to win as much as you can and for the other side to lose, for you to win, or for the other side to lose just for them to lose, that's your your personality. That's who you are. I'm not going to judge you for it. All I'm asking is, is win-win a value to you? And because successful or or building trust relies on personality compatibility is win-win a value to the other side now it's a big problematic you will agree with me if you care about win-win but they don't they care about win-lose because then it's it's one it's not symmetrical which is another component of the relative trust model but second there is no personality compatibility here and that would be a problem in negotiations. The second part still talking about personality compatibility is the role that the following play in entering those negotiations. And I'm talking about your side, but again, it it, it has to be a personality compatibility with the other side. How important is it to you to be right? Now you may be right. First of all, I think that by now you heard enough of this podcast, um, To know that I do believe that uh, every story has two sides. So being right uh, can be looked at from different angles. You know, there's being right from your perspective and being right from their perspective. But let's say that there was only one being right. How important is it to you to be right versus to get what you want out of the negotiations? That needs to play a role. Again, on both sides, there has to be personality compatibility to be able to conduct a win-win negotiation. How important is ego? Now, uh, again, I'm not going to judge. Ego plays a role. Emotions play a role. We're in a world of political polarization like we've never seen before. And and there was a uh, study that said that the level of political polarization we have today or even hatred inside our country is as high as it was and maybe even higher during the Civil War in the 1860s. But that really means that the role that being right, the role of the ego, the role of the emotions and what I feel plays, it plays a bigger role. It is a bigger role than the cold, ice-cold, what is it that I'm trying to get? What is it that we're trying to get? There are emotions involved. there's ego. Each side wants to be right. And sometimes they sacrifice the uh, the compo- they, they sacrifice what they should gain from the negotiations just so that they're right and and they can even sacrifice reaching an agreement. Just because they want to be right. Once again, I'm not judging. This is, you are who you are and being right might be more important to you than to other people or less important than to other people. But there has to be a personality compatibility. This has to be symmetrical for negotiations to be successful. At least, at least if what you're trying to do is a win-win negotiation. Because if one of them, if one of you cares about being right and the other does not, it's not going to be a win-win. I want to tell you a story. Back in the late 90s, in actually 99 and early 2000, I negotiated the sale of a company. It was a tiny little company. The company was originally owned by two uh, friends, two partners, uh, and it was owned um, close to 50-50. One of them, uh, the CEO, held slightly over 50% of the company, but it was very close to 50-50. When I entered that company, I I became the third partner in the company. But um, at some point, it was time to sell the company. It was the right time. We had the right technology that was really needed in the market at that time, but we didn't have the marketing arm. We were too small of a company to be able to sell. But the and and because of that, the, the best outcome would have been for us to sell the company with the technology to a company that has the marketing arm and the connections to to push that technology to their customers because that's how you make money. They didn't have the technology, we didn't have the marketing. So uh, I, I found a company to acquire us. Uh, I went through a process. This is not the time to discuss the entire process, but I ended up finding the uh a target to buy this company and we started negotiating we started negotiating and at some point we reached an agreement this was going to be a stock and cash deal well um one day as i was because i was the negotiator on our side one day and and by the way entering the negotiations and this is something very important you want to have one person be the focal point of the negotiations. You may include others in setting terms, especially in areas that they're they're professional or specialize in, uh, but you wanna have one person negotiate. And one of the things that I made very clear to the two other partners in our company was that I'm the single point of contact. Everything that needs to be discussed has to go through me. And one day I get the contract back so as as we're going through the contract and, and making changes, I look at it and there is an interesting change from the previous draft. And the change was that, as I said, this was a cash and stock deal. Um, 90% of the deal was stock and 10% was cash. And all of a sudden, the entire cash was going to go to one of the partners. None of the cash was going to go to the other partner. Overall, when you add up cash and stock, they would get exactly based on their ownership in the company. So so that did not change their ratio. But what's cash versus what's stock has changed. And, And I was surprised because I didn't bring it up. There was absolutely no reason for the acquiring company to bring it up or at least that, that I would thought. And I went and asked them, when did this come? When did this come up? And what they told me, what the negotiator on the other side told me, by the way, we became very close friends. Uh, and unfortunately he passed away during the negotiations and he was, uh, uh, succeeded by somebody else until we, we closed it. But, uh, we, we we became very open, and I'll talk more about that in, in how you conduct negotiations with trust. But um, I asked, how did that happen? And he said, well, one of the partners reached out to me and said, well, we have an internal agreement that the cash comes, comes as part of my part uh, and not the other person's part. I took it back to the two partners, and obviously the first thing I said is, What did I say about I'm the only person conducting the, the negotiations? I'm the only point of contact. But then the other partner, you know, we have the phrase, he blew a gasket, but he really blew up. I mean, he was ready to walk away. This was going to be a deal that just so that you know, was more than three times what they hoped the deal would end up in terms of price. More than three times. And he was willing to walk away because he did not agree that the cash would end up with one person. And, and, of course, when I asked how did that happen, as it turns out, one of them reached out to the company and said, the cash ends up with me. And, and the other one agreed to it. And what he said, what the discussion was really between the two of them, when one of them said, what if this was a pure stock deal and the other one said I'm fine with a pure stock deal and the first one interpreted that to oh so the cash goes to me as part of my part which was not what the second one meant they were ready to blow it away fairness is one of the components of trust now, we're, mind you, we're not talking about the negotiations between us and the company acquiring us that was kind of puzzled on this whole situation. I'm now talking about negotiations inside our company, specifically between the, two, uh, the other two partners. Uh, and, and they had the majority. I, I had the min- minority ownership. So, you know, just between the two of them, we're talking about a very large part of the company and, and what we get for selling the company. Fairness is very important. And one of them was willing to walk away because this wasn't fair to him. And this is where we're starting to go into the zero-sum game. This is where we're starting to go into being right and emotions. Let's talk about conducting the negotiations themselves. And specifically, I'm going to talk about intent versus tools in the contract and even during the negotiations we often focus on the terms themselves and and we're trying to get to to get to terms especially in a win-lose negotiation but even in win-win we're trying to get to terms that are so strong and so in our favor that one has to ask the question is it are they enforceable can they be enforced if they're so strong and so one-sided, very off balance. But but the whole concept of the focus is on the terms instead of what we're trying to achieve is bad for a win-win negotiations. Because sometimes we may argue over the terms as opposed to over what we're trying to achieve. And because of that, we're not going to get a better outcome for both of us. And I'm going to give you an example. And hopefully uh, you're not going to be in one of my workshops on... um, uh, Actually, it's only the longest part of the the, uh, Trust Workshop where I, I get to this exercise and I don't use it all the time. But it's an exercise where you have to negotiate against someone else. What you're negotiating is this. You have a convertible let's say ford mustang you live in los angeles which is where you're going to have a convertible the other person lives in new york now uh i'm going to tell you this story from one side and and what i do in in this uh in this exercise, is I hand out two forms. I tell both sides, the seller and the buyer, what is it that you're buying and what is it that you're selling. What are the things? Some some information in the background, and then I have them negotiate and see where they reach. So I'm going to focus on you, the the um, the seller. Okay, you're you you have that convertible. You want to sell the convertible. The other person wants to buy it. So. Uh, you know that the fair market value is, let's say, $8,000. The other person calls you and they start negotiating. Now, here's the deal. Why do you sell the car? I, I, I should have started with that. You don't want to sell the car. You love the car. You want to keep the car. Um, but you have a trip going to New York. And as it turns out, you are about $1,000 short. You want to spend the entire summer, let's say July 1st to August 31st, you want to spend in New York. And you just found out that the hotel cost is $1,000 above your budget. So here's what you're thinking. You love the car, although you're not going to use it for two months, and I'm not sure if it's a great idea to just keep the car standing for two months, but you decided, you know what? If the fair market value of this car is $8,000, I'm going to sell it for $9,000, at least $9,000. And then I have the extra $1,000 that I needed. I'm going to go have my trip to New York. August 31st, I'm going to come back. I'm going to look for a car just like this. Since the fair market value is only 8000 and I sold mine for 9000 I got the extra $1,000 to use on that trip, but I still have $8,000 left to buy a car just like the one I had. Obviously, not ideal. There would be, hopefully, there would have been a better way to get $1,000, but there is none. So, this is what you decide to do. Now, you get a call from someone who wants to buy the car negotiate selling your car okay so uh, i'm not going to tell you what the buyer had for a second but i'm just going to tell you what happens they start negotiating and i'm listening to them and this guy starts going oh you know but i i'm willing to pay a little over uh over fair market value but not too much and uh you know it goes back and forth for the most part about 80 90 percent of them they end at nine thousand dollars they shake hands they reach agreement at nine thousand dollars i asked them um raise your hand if uh you close the deal well most of them do uh raise your hand if your price ended up being nine thousand dollars most of them do great then i asked the question that really uh that, that really surprises them. And by the way, I didn't invent this, this exercise. I took part in that exercise and I thought it was brilliant. Uh, and so I'm using it every now and then since then. So then I asked this, this question, sellers, how many of you really wanted to sell the car because you didn't want to own this car anymore? None of them raised their hands. This is where you look at the buyers and they have this puzzled look on their faces and they go, wait, so why did you sell me the car? But then I ask the buyers, buyers, how many of you bought this car because you wanted in the long term to own this car? None of them raises the car at their hands. And this is where the sellers look puzzled. And this is when I tell them to sweep, uh, swap the, their instructions. So you already know what the instructions to the seller were, but how about the instructions to the buyer? So here's the buyer. The buyer lives in New York. He has an apartment in New York. He or she has an apartment in New York. Um, and they want to travel to Los Angeles for the summer, July 1st to August 31st. They rented a convertible. Except that they just realized that the dates on the contract were actually for January, February instead of July, uh, August, which obviously was wrong. And as they start calling frantically to rental car agencies to find uh, another convertible, they find that the price is going to be $1,000 more. But here's the thought. As they happen to look up at, uh, let's say, Craigslist. They find that there is a convertible, kind of like what they wanted, on the market. And, you know, the fair market value is $8,000. But frankly, even if all they had to do is pay $9,000 for it and then sell it after two months for $8,000, they got their car for a total of $1,000, which was the original price that they were expecting. It's actually even a little less than that. But let's say it is. So they were willing to pay up to $1,000 over fair market value to get this car, knowing that they're going to have to sell it after two months to get $8,000 out of the nine back. And so really they only spent $1,000. Then I asked them, now that you know, each one of you, buyer-seller, now that you know what the other side really needed was there a better deal to have well uh the first better deal would be how about i pay you this is the buyer how about i pay you a thousand dollars let me use your car for two months get it back when uh on august 31st No need to change title. No need for you. No need for me to find a buyer for the car after two months. No need for you to find another car to buy after two months. Isn't that easier? I'll just give you $1,000. Gets even better. There is even a better deal to be made. And that is, oh, wait, I have an apartment in New York, which I'm not going to use for the two months that you're going to be in New York. Want to use my apartment? I'll use your car. We don't even change hands on $1,000. So you save, you save, the other person saves, and uh, that's a better deal to be had. Why didn't we reach that deal? Why didn't you reach that deal upfront? Well, obviously, they would blame me because uh, those were the instructions. The instructions I gave them actually started with, whatever you do, do not tell the other side Why you want to do this deal? Because it would hurt your negotiating positions. Which is not true, but that's what I'm trying to get them to do. To not disclose the real reason. Because if you do disclose the real reason, there would be a better deal to be had. Let's go back to uh, the overall picture of negotiations. We focus on the terms, We focus on the 8,000 versus 9,000, whether we do this or we do that. But if you really want to have win-win, instead of focusing on the terms, how about you go level up or, or five levels up and focus on the intent? What is it that you're really trying to get? Because there are different ways to get there not just uh, the the set of terms that you are thinking about without knowing what the other side. But, and there is a big but here, it requires you and the other side to be vulnerable. It requires you to say what you really want to get out of it. And maybe what you really want to get out of it is something you're not going to get from the other side. You're going to get it from what you get from the other side is only part of it. But if you can be vulnerable enough to say why you want to have it, why you want to, you know, do whatever it is you want to do, you put the other side in a better position to help you win. As long as they're doing the same thing. We're going back to symmetry. As long as they're trying to get the same thing. Well, the relationship between trust and vulnerability are reciprocal. I'm going to trust you if you're vulnerable with me. Because I feel your vulnerability and I go, this is someone I can trust. They're telling me what they really need. And not just trying to, you know, get a better deal from me. They're not trying to get me to lose. This is about them winning what they want to win. But there's also, being reciprocal means that vulnerability depends on trust. And what I found is a 240% correlation. So uh, the more I trust you, if I trust you, I'm 240% more willing to be vulnerable. So there is... Something to be said to building trust before you enter that negotiation or, or or trying to build it as quickly as possible through the negotiations. Obviously, not going to happen if all you do is buy a car, because even then, uh, you know, the long that, that it takes to buy a car, which could be like three, four hours, which, by the way, I love. I, I loved being in the uh, dealership for three, four hours and negotiating. But... Building that trust throughout the process would help both sides be willing to be vulnerable. An important, a very important part, you remember that uh, what accelerates the positivity of an interaction, because now we're in an interaction. The negotiations are an interaction. And, you know, all the other rules of the the interaction of, the, of positivity in the relative trust model applies here. No BS and empathy. You know, if, if you BS your way through the negotiations, the other side sees it. They feel it. They feel that you're BSing them and they're not willing to, to step back from what they need. Less BS, more empathy. When the other side sees that you care about their winning, and I talked about that in, in the context of personality compatibility, but it's true throughout the interaction itself. They need to feel that you care about them. You need to feel that they care about you. And this is the positivity that builds trust, and it's accelerated, if you remember, by time and intimacy. So, if the negotiations take five minutes, uh, it's probably you're probably not going to build enough trust to get to really win-win. If it's something that happens over a long period of time, when you're you can build trust, then you will accelerate the positivity and turning turning it into trust. But the other part that that accelerates it is body language, or I call it intimacy, really. Uh, If your negotiations take place over emails, which sometimes it does, it's not going to accelerate building trust and reaching win-win as much as if negotiations actually take place in person, face-to-face. Because that's when body language consistency comes into play. So, if you are, if you, you will need to be able to read their body language and see if their body language is consistent with what they say, what they're trying to say. And and you will feel that even if you're not an expert, for the most part, you can sense that. But they will be able to sense yours. And as long as what you say is what you mean, your body language will reflect that in that consistency. But if you say one thing and mean something else and they'll be able to interpret that, then your body language is inconsistent and they will not trust you. You will not build trust. Now, of course, when you go into negotiations with somebody that you've never met before, this is where we go into the reciprocity of trust and trustworthiness. Um, and, And now the question comes whether... You trust someone and they have your trust to lose from, from the get-go. Or you don't trust someone and they have to earn your trust. If you start in the latter and they have to earn your trust before you can trust them, then it's going to take a long time to build that trust. You're not going to reach vulnerability and, and you're not going to reach win-win. But if you're willing to get a little ahead in how much trust you give them, in, in how much you trust them a little ahead. I'm not saying hundred percent. I'm not saying start with blind trust uh, and let them, uh, uh, let, let them betray you. I'm saying start with some trust in them, kind of call it the, give them the benefit of the trust or the benefit of the doubt. So you're going to trust them first because they will feel that trust and reciprocate with trustworthiness and vice versa. If if they trust you, if you feel that they trust you, then you will reciprocate with some trustworthiness, and, and you you will feel more comfortable being vulnerable. You'll feel more comfortable sharing your body language. So you really need to start with trust, and that's that's you know the sixth law of trust. The trust is reciprocal. Trust and trustworthiness are reciprocal. <laughs> A very important component of negotiations is the term bargaining zone. So what is the bargaining zone? Let's say that uh, that you're buying a car and uh, you are willing to pay $8,000 up to $8,000 and they are asking for $9,000. Obviously, th- there is no room there to, to negotiate or at least it doesn't appear to. And, and this is where the term uh, walk away term or number or whatever takes place. Is your $8,000 the absolute maximum you're willing to pay? Is $9,000 the absolute minimum that they're willing to take? And a very important part of successful negotiations is for both sides to actually know what their walkaway term or their walkaway line is. But let's say that you're willing to pay up to 9,000 and they're willing to take down to 8,000. Now we have a bargaining zone. So a bargaining zone is an area that both of you can live with. If this is the outcome, if the outcome is in this zone, this bargaining zone, Both of you can live with it. So is there a bargaining zone? Again, it doesn't start before both of you know what your walkaway points are. Now, I want to separate that, especially when when you do a transactional negotiation, so kind of a one-time thing, that we use the term, this is my walkaway price, but you don't really mean it. So... I'm not even talking about sharing that line because obviously it doesn't work in your benefit if you tell the other person, I'm actually willing to pay up to 9,000. They're saying, I'm actually willing to take down to 8,000. I mean, because now you're going to fight to pay as little as possible, which is 8,000. They're going to try and negotiate to get as as high as 9,000. So I'm not not saying you need to share it necessarily. I don't know if you remember the movie uh, uh, Pretty Woman with... um, uh, Richard Gere and, uh, oh, for the life of me, I don't remember uh, the name. But um, when they they agree on a price for her to be with him for several days, and, and I don't remember what the numbers were, but uh, she said, I was willing to take, I think it was $2,000, and he said, I was willing to pay four so you know you don't share it and and by the way what would you feel if after you're done let's say that you negotiated and that you were you you were willing to go as high you're buying you're willing to go as high as 9000 the other side was willing to go down to 8000 you ended up at 9000 which is you know your walk away price and then the other side says i was actually willing to pay to sell it to you for 8000 what do you feel I mean, so it's pretty stupid to to share that after the fact to say, oh, you know what? Uh, be, because really what, what the other side is telling you is I won and you lost. And, you know, often when, when I negotiate and and we do reach an agreement, especially when it's a hard one to reach, I tell the other side, you got me pretty much as far from my walkaway line as or as far from where I wanted to end. And as close to my walk walk away line, uh, as as close to it as possible. Um, and 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 I congratulate the other side for for negotiating well. It, it gives them a good feeling. And and I don't do that uh, without meaning it. I, I do that only if I mean it. So the first question is: Is there a bargaining zone? And and obviously this is determined by a personality compatibility, because if the personalities are very, very incompatible, then there's not going to be a bargaining zone. You know, what I need is something that you are absolutely not willing to give. And what you need is something that I'm absolutely not willing to, to give you. And really the reason is because of the personalities, the personality incompatibilities that that we have. So there has to be a bargaining zone. I'm going to go back to the story of the company that I sold, because obviously we were in a very, very weird situation. I'm about to close a deal for selling the company for more than three times higher price than what they wanted to get for the company. And um, one of them is willing to walk away because the other one did something that's unfair. So I'm going to round numbers and say it was about 2 million dollars that was going to be in cash and 20 million in stock and, and sorry 18 million in stock total was a 20 million dollar deal. And one of the owners said I'm going to get 8 million in stock and uh, and I'm just talking about their part. I'm going to get uh 8 million in stock and 2 million in cash. The other one gets 10 million in cash. So essentially, uh, in stock. So essentially, they have uh, the same total amount, except one of them has all the cash. Now, what's the fair thing? The fair thing is they get, again, they were pretty close to 50 50 between the two of them. But the fair thing was for one of them to get half, to to get, you know, 1 million in cash and 9 in stock, and for the other to get 1 million in cash and, and 9 in stock. But they were not willing to get there. Neither one of them, well, actually, one of them obviously was the one that uh, all of a sudden found himself only with stock in the contract, wasn't done yet. Uh, Wanted to get more than zero in cash. The other one wanted to get the two million. Well, that's not going to end this way. So we start, so I start, you know, I separated them and I started negotiating with each one of them separately really to try and find out if there was a bargaining zone. And I eventually found one. Was it fair? No. Was it right? No. Was it balanced? No. Was it symmetrical? No, but it was there. The second partner was willing to walk away with half a million in cash, knowing that the first partner would get 1.5 million in cash. Again, in total, they each get 10 million. But the distribution between cash and stock would be very different. But that point, 1.5 million versus half, was a bargaining zone. That was something that they could agree on. And that's how the deal ended. We actually ended up with one of them getting, both of them getting 10 million, approximately, 10 million total. One of them was getting 8.5 in stock and 1.5 in cash. The other was getting 9.5 in cash stock and 0.5 in cash. So what if there wasn't a bargaining zone in that case or in any case, there has to be a bargaining zone. The first step in determining the bargaining zone is for you to know what the bargaining zone, what your boundaries of the bargaining zone is, are. And for the other person to know what their walkaway, their real walkaway, not the one that we're going to say, this is my walkaway price, and then you end up uh, moving beyond it. No. What is the real walkaway price? Again, trust plays a role in it because uh, if you are, the less trust you have, the less you're willing to disclose what it is. And of course, really conducting a win-win negotiation starts with the intention what is it that we're trying to achieve because that that price might be secondary like in the, the car negotiations example or, or exercise that I do so the first step is for each one of you to know what your bargaining zone is or what your walk away really is and based on that we determine if there is a bargaining zone and sometimes, you know, you do share it and say, you know, my walkaway price is this, but my walkaway on something else is that, and, and you you compromise and, and you give and take, you know, I'm going to give you more of this if you give me more of that, and, and you end up with a compromise that's, that's, more, that, that's better for both of you. But what if there is no bargaining zone? What if we can't find a bargaining zone? you need to know when to walk away. The other side needs to know when to walk away. It is important to know that there is no bargaining zone. And unfortunately, I see too many negotiations, a lot of them taking place in the Middle East right now, where I know that there is no bargaining zone. What one side wants to get The other side is not willing to give. And what one side must have, the other side, the first side, is not willing to give. There is no bargaining zone. And having a negotiation is just a waste of time. Let me try this point, summarize how you go about negotiations. The first is you have to ask yourself, Is this going to be part of a long-term relationship? And does it matter to you that the other side doesn't lose, even if it's not a long-term relationship? The second question is, are they seeing it the same way? Because if they don't, you you don't have the symmetry of of the situation and and you're not going to end up with a win-win. Number three. Don't focus on the means to reach what you want or for them to reach what they want. Focus on the intention. What's the highest level goal? What what are you really trying to get? Number four, go to the basics. Is there an alignment of those intentions? In order to do that, you need to keep emotions an ego out of it or or just being right for the sake of being right. Now, if you can't, if that's, that's an important part to you, that's fine. That's your walkaway price, if you will. Number six, say what needs to be said. If you are holding something back, it's not going to give you or allow you to reach a win-win outcome. Number seven, listen to the other side. Every story has two sides. Be empathetic. That's part of positivity. Remember that there is another side. Number eight, be creative. Try and find a solution that maximizes wins for both sides. Number nine, is there a bargaining zone? It starts for you, with you and the other side finding it out for yourselves. But then you have to figure out together, is there a bargaining zone? Number 10, if not, walk away. You're not going to reach a deal. You're going to reach a bad deal. Maybe bad for you, maybe bad for them. It's not going to be an enforceable deal. It's not going to be a deal that both sides would live up to. So what's the point? If you can't find that there is a bargaining zone, walk away. Number eleven. Give time to build trust. The more time, the more you accelerate the the positivity of the interaction, the no BS and the uh, the um, uh, empathy. Number 12, I think, hold it in person. Body language consistency on both sides. Number 13, start with trust. Don't start with blind trust in the other side. I mean, you are obviously on the opposite sides or maybe relatively on opposite sides of something, of the outcome, but you have to start with trust. Trust would allow you to be vulnerable. Vulnerability would allow you to be more empathetic it would allow you to share things with the other side that would allow both of you to understand what each other's goals are, the higher level intentions are. And that's how that's how you go about holding negotiations with trust. Again, this is for long-term relationships. When you negotiate, when you want to negotiate a win-win When you want to hold a win-win negotiations, not when you want to hold a win-lose negotiation. Because if this is transactional and win-win doesn't matter to you, get as much as you can from the other side. Just make sure that whatever you're asking for is something that they can comply with. Because there is no point in getting something, an agreement for something, uh, without them uh, being able to comply. Read Chris Voss's book, Never Split the Middle. This is how, negotiate like you're a hostage negotiator, okay? Just keep in mind one thing. The result of the negotiations reflects on who you are. Maybe you want to be considered, and especially if you're a hostage negotiator, you want to be considered a very successful hostage negotiator. But By the way, just keep in mind that the next hostage taker who knows how good you are in that is prepared. So is that what you want to do? I want to take you back to my second year in law school when we went through contract law. So I was I was an older student at that time. I was in my, I think, mid-30s, uh, while most of the other students were in their early 20s. And um, I remember that uh, we were asked about putting a contract in place uh, with some very strong language because we are better lawyers than the other side has. And, uh, the professor was asking about the terms we're going to put and you know, all the students were coming up with those draconian terms that they're going to put in there. And it's like, this is how we win. Of course, the other side would have to lose. And I was sitting in the back there, uh, kind of smiling. And at some point he looked at me and he said, okay, so you're smiling. What, what, what are you thinking? And I said, well, it's very simple. If you put, terms that the other side can't live with, they won't. This contract will never be enforced. So now this brings the question, is there even a need to write a contract? And and again, you know, I talked about that. A contract doesn't have to be in writing, doesn't have to be signed. It, it's really more of an evidentiary, uh, has more of an evidentiary uh, role. But to me, contract has to be built on trust, especially... You know, again, if this is a one-time transaction, I get the car. I don't need to trust you with anything else after that. Maybe I do with service. Maybe I do with customer support or something else. So maybe this is a long-term relationship rather than a one-time transaction. But let's say that this is a pure one-time transaction. Something changes hands. Money changes hands. We're done. Maybe that doesn't have to be built on trust. Get as much as you can. But... I consider a contract, especially a long-term contract, to serve as setting the expectations for what each side side promised and address some of the what-ifs. What if this happened? What if that happened? Again, not necessarily as something that would be later taken to court and enforced in court, as it is something that... You know, if this is a long-term contract, today I remember what we promised. And if it's a complicated relationship, then maybe even today I don't remember what we promised each other to do. But if this is a long-term relationship, we're going to forget. And this is just a way for us to put it in writing to remind ourselves. This is the role that I see for contracts. Because I associate contracts, entering a contract with trust. Others may see it differently. This is how I see it. This is it. This is this episode. Um, You know, I'm I'm recording this episode two months, almost two months into the Israel-Hamas war of 2023 that started on October 7th. And I was really thinking about analyzing negotiations between the two sides that took place on the release of hostages, the overall goals of both sides, try to see if there is a bargaining zone and so on. But one, this is a very, very emotional topic for me, for other people. It's a little hard to analyze it right now objectively without emotions, keeping emotions out of it. It's going to be hard for someone listening to that analysis to consider, even if I'm objective, to consider what I suggest objectively. So I'm not going to touch it. At least I'm not going to touch it right now. I'll just stick with general negotiations. And I want to remind you that nothing in this episode constitutes legal advice. If you need legal advice, seek a lawyer. This is it for today. May trust be with you. This was The Trust Show. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll answer it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you email me at yoram at trustshow.com. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get notified when I release a new episode. Rate it, write a review for this podcast because those ratings help not only you, but also others looking for podcasts just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my workshops, online courses, books or go to my website trusthabits.com and remember that the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure can i trust you and can you trust me thank you for listening or watching the trust show